Well, I'm turning this morning to Psalm 136. Psalm 136 this morning. Psalm 136. This morning, as we begin considering this psalm, uh, I was struck with a thought this week about the mercy of God. And it was the thinking on the mercy of God that I, as I was reading through the scriptures uh, reminded me of that uh, was once said by a man regarding mercy. I do not know who the author of this was, but he said, We are ever needing mercy trying it, praying for it, receiving it. Therefore, let us forever sing of it. And I thought how appropriate that is to think about the mercy of our Lord. And I began to consider and began to think about uh, what is God's mercy? And that would be one of the main questions, of course, we would ask. But then I would ask the question, how long does this mercy last? And of course, Psalm 136 not only gives an answer to the first question, but it gives an answer to the second question, which we understand His mercy endures forever. In Psalm 136, the phrase, His mercy endureth forever, is mentioned 26 times in every single verse. 26 times God saw fit to remind us how long His mercy will last. Anytime we see repetition in Scripture, of course, we should take that to mean, certainly, we should take careful note and careful attention to why something is being repeated so often. In all 26 of these verses, something about God's mercy is declared, something about God's marvelous acts, or something that God has done on behalf of His people is put before us. And as that individual that I began this message with, that man that says we are ever needing mercy, it is not mercy that we once receive and then no longer need anymore. It is mercy we need each and every day and each and every moment of every day. We ever need mercy. But then there's also the principle of trying God's mercy. Not putting God to the test per se, but showing and proving that God is in fact merciful. He's exactly what He said He is, a merciful God. But then I began thinking about what that man said about praying for mercy. And I asked, asked myself the question, when is the last time I actually prayed for the mercy of myself or the, especially the mercy upon someone else? Praying for God's mercy. And then receiving it. The receiving of God's mercy. All these things lead us to that one great truth that we not only read by this quote of Anonymity, I do not know who quoted this. But then as we read in our call to worship in 1 Chronicles 16, we ought to sing unto the Lord as a result of it. All throughout the Scriptures, we're called to sing. The Psalms are songs. 
They are songs that were sung. They were sung by the people who knew this God. We look at the Bible and we think about all the words and we think it as a book and it is a book and it's an inspired book. But we often fail to see that these psalms were sung. They were meant to be sung as songs of praise. It is an accurate representation and the only real, true, doctrinally sound, perfect hymn book. Because it does not contain an error. It does not contain anything that might make us say, is that all together right? Or is there a hint of maybe might make us think something else? It's a perfect hymn book. It was meant to be sung. Singing is a sign of rejoicing. When we sing, we sing as one who is rejoicing. We sing as people who have received this mercy. We sing as people who understand what God's mercy is. Now, in no shock to you, I'm sure, I've titled this psalm, His Mercy Endureth Forever. Oftentimes, the Scriptures sometimes lay out for us in the most perfect fashion what a particular passage is about. And there's no question that this passage is about the mercy of the Lord. Let's just look at the first few verses this morning. We won't read the entirety of the psalm because we're going to be spending the next few weeks in this psalm. This is not a one day, let's think about this psalm and just scan it. We're going to expound this and go through it verse by verse. But notice what it says in the first four verses. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for His mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His mercy endureth forever. To Him who alone doeth great wonders, for His mercy endureth forever. This expression that appears 26 times in every verse of the psalm. This expression, His mercy endureth forever, means His covenant love and loyalty towards His people is eternal. His covenant love and loyalty towards His people is eternal. There is nothing greater than a covenant of God. There is nothing greater than a promise that God has made because we know that God cannot nor would even consider breaking one of His covenants. He is merciful. His mercy, this covenant love, this covenantal loyalty towards His people is eternal. His mercy is never-ending and is to be praised forever by His people. There is no doubt in my mind that when we are surrounding the throne of God one day and we are bowed before our Lord and Savior, we will still be thanking the Lord for His mercy. I do not believe that once we get to heaven, we will stop praising and thanking God. I think it's going to be an eternal praise and an eternal thanksgiving. That will occupy, I use this term loosely, the majority of our time because time will not be in the sense that we think about time today. Time is eternal with God. 
Eternity is immeasurable. It is impossible for me to tell you how long eternity is, but I can express it to you that His mercy will endure for all of eternity. When will eternity end? It has no end. That means He's not just merciful now, He is going to be merciful for all of eternity. Thomas Watson said it so clearly. He said, every breath you take, you inhale mercy. Every breath you take, you inhale mercy. As we think about this psalm and we think about the grand subject of the psalm, we clearly see that the grand object or the subject of this psalm is to give thanks unto the Lord. We give thanks unto the Lord for His mercy, but we also give thanks to the Lord for His goodness. Again, how long will His goodness and mercy last? They will endure and last forever. The first four verses that we read are really a preface to the entire psalm. The first four verses primarily deal with the goodness of the Lord. You'll notice that expression in verse 1. He is good. Now again, when we refer to God as good, we are not referring to God in human terms of good. Good falls under great. Good falls under excellent. But in God's terms, good is perfection. It is is the sign of deity. He is the only one who is good. Even as the Lord Jesus was dealing with that rich young ruler, the first question he asked him is, why do you call me good? The goodness of God really introduces this entire psalm. This psalm is, of course, surrounded with the mercy of God, but the goodness of the Lord, this is also the word Jehovah. All-powerful God. Oh, give thanks unto Jehovah, for He is good. The goodness of Jehovah is His mercy. He is described as being, in verse 2, the God of gods. The Lord of lords, for His mercy endureth forever. We notice then in verse 3, it talks about His Lord of lords, His mercy endureth forever. Verse 4, to Him who alone doeth great wonders, His mercy endures forever. There is none, there is none that has done so many great wonders as our God. The great wonders that he then will get, the psalmist will get into over the next couple of weeks, he says, by His wisdom He created Everything that's been created has been been created by an all-powerful, perfect, good God. Oftentimes we get led to believe that creation and this world, and I want you to listen to me carefully, that this world is just a disaster. The world that God created is not the problem. It's the sin of man. God's creation is a great wonder. God's creation is to be, we are to behold His glory. We are to behold His creation. We're not to simply just say, look, all of creation is a mess. No. He is good. He is good. Man is not good. 
To declare God's creation as something unworthy of praise and thanksgiving is to deny God of what He's claimed by Scripture to be. Good who by His wisdom made the heavens for His mercy endureth forever. Verse 5. His mercy, He created the heavens. This is the very substance of this introductory part of the Psalms. Again, notice as we'll give you a quick overview of this particular psalm without going into great detail this morning, but we see this account of God's creating the heavens. How did He create those heavens? He created them by His wisdom. Notice it says in verse 6, how did He do that? To Him that stretched out the earth above the waters, for His mercy endureth forever. It talks about Him creating great lights. It talks about Him creating the sun. It talks about Him creating the moon, the stars, with the very purpose of governing the night. Even that is ascribed to His mercy. See, we often think of mercy as just what's been displayed towards individual sinners, but everything God does, His mercy is being displayed. Displaying His mercy... In creation. Takes us down to verse at the end of verse number 9, and then it turns into verse 10 and begins a series of the great acts of God. There's an account that's in this psalm about how God, through His power, brought, brought about the destruction of Egypt. How God brought about the destruction of the firstborn and how He brought Israel out of those many years of captivity. And the Bible describes it in verse 12 as being done with a strong hand. That's another powerful expression about the strong hand of God. It says in verse 14, He made Israel to pass through the midst of it for His mercy endureth forever. Then we see what is often referred to as one of the great miracles. Of course, we see how he overthrew Pharaoh, verse 15, and the host in the Red Sea, but his people were led through it, and into the wilderness they went. And then we get to the end of the beginning, get to the end of the chapter, or the end of the psalm here. And we see in verses 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22, we see the psalmist begin to give acts of praise for what he has done. This great act of not only creating in his wisdom, but leading his people through his strong hand through the wilderness, destroying the kings who would come up against God's people, giving his people lands of inheritance, And then what has really struck me over and over and over again is verse 23. The psalmist says, who remembered us? But do not lose sight of how he remembered us in our lowest state. Our lowest state. Some glorious way God gave attention to people who did not deserve it, and who didn't earn it. Mankind apart from God is in its lowest estate. It's in its lowest possible position. There's no lower place to be than without God. 
There's no sadder condition for a human being to be in than to be without God. And again, every time that we want to lash out on people who do not have God, I want you to remember who God remembered. So that when we begin to ambitiously think we're better than someone God's not remembering, remember God remembered you in your lowest estate. You didn't clean yourself up in order for God to now remember you. He remembered you when you were a sinner. He remembered you. He remembered me in our depravity. And then notice verse 24. We're going to talk much more about each one of these verses. And hath redeemed us from our enemies. Now I realize the word redeemed here is not just about the saving of the soul. The Israelite could sp- certainly speak about him redeeming them from the enemies. How many times did God throughout the wilderness, even in their unfaithfulness, how many times did God remain faithful to them? But the Psalms are not just for Israel. The Psalms are for God's people. If the Psalms were not for anyone but Israel, then why do we read them? He has redeemed us from our greatest enemy. He's redeemed us from the enemy of sin, from death, from hell, from Satan. And because of these things, we see verses 25 and 26, Oh, give thanks unto the God of heaven, for His mercy endureth forever. Notice one of the most basic things we ought to be thankful for. Who giveth food to all flesh. I'm sure you're like me. You take every meal that you have for granted. We just assume the food will be there. We assume the provision will be there. And we assume that it will always take care of us and we'll always have it. But realize who gives that food to you. And not only to us, but He even provides to those who are not even believers. The Bible declares He makes His reign to fall on the field of the just and on the field of the unjust. God is good. Think about this hymn. This is a hymn of thanksgiving. The hymn ends with the very subject or object of the, of the, the psalm itself. His mercy endureth forever. When we speak about His goodness, we are speaking about something that can only be attributed to God. Again, go back with me to verse 1, and He says, Give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. This entire psalm gives us instance after instance of how God has been good. But But I want us to consider the Lord's true attributes. And I want us to consider the very essence of God, the very Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. God has this almost what we, we have to come to, to, humanly speaking, an incomprehensible essence and glory about Him that it's hard for our minds to even come up with a suitable definition of who He is. When we think about Jehovah, we're not just thinking about God the Father. We're thinking about the Trinity. We're thinking about the persons of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. 
And it's the goodness of Jehovah that's being mentioned here. Goodness is not just something He does, but it is who God is. It is His essence. In other words, it's not even accurate to say that God is a God who just does good things. No, He is good. Just like it's not right to say that God does acts of love. No, He is love. These are the attributes of God. The goodness of Jehovah that's being mentioned here, we have to take these words and understand them with respect to who He is in His essence. And then, how that God communicates His goodness to the world. That's really what's at the heart of this. He is good, and then He communicates His goodness to the world. Not just the church, but to every creature that's upon this earth, He communicates goodness in what He does. We know as believers today, and I trust that you know this, that there's been nothing greater communicated to us than what's been communicated to us through Jesus Christ. The ultimate display of God's goodness is to think upon the goodness of God in giving us Christ. Now sadly, I think sadly to our, to our own fault in many times, we fall prey to what the rest of the world does when we get to a month like November that suddenly now we focus on thankfulness. But we ought to be thankful for the goodness of God, not at, every, at a season, but every moment of every day. Even the world will in some way give thanks and yet not acknowledge the communication of that goodness as to where it came from. There are some that will sit around a Thanksgiving table and will give thanks, but they have no idea who they're giving thanks for and what they're giving thanks for. But those who know the Lord, what we're thanking Him for is His goodness that He's communicated to us. Remember, He came to us and remembered us in our low estate. He didn't have to. Sometimes, God, in order to remind us of His goodness, will occasionally take a blessing or two away from us just to show us again to get our eyes back upon Him. We don't think about God removing some blessings from us in order to chasten us, to bring us back to think about the goodness of God. God wouldn't do that. That's one of the most glorious things God does is to remove something from you in order to get your eyes back upon His goodness and upon who He is. If He doesn't do that, we are prone to let our eyes wander and also our praise and our thanksgiving begins to move away from God and we suddenly begin to heap back upon ourselves credit for everything good that's happening in our lives. Everything good is a result of God's goodness being communicated to us. The goodness of the Lord, again throughout this psalm, we see God communicating this goodness in a very special, intentional way. He communicates Himself. Now that sounds a bit deep, and it is. 
But when God communicates, He communicates Himself. Not a principle, not an idea, not a concept, not a philosophy. He communicates Himself. He's communicating to His people what He is, which is good. Now throughout this psalm, especially in these introductory verses, the O give thanks is an exhortation for people to join in in giving thanks. In other words, one of the greatest privileges that God's people have is to assemble together and give thanks together. God never intended faith and the exercise of faith to be done by yourself Folks, this gathering of this ch local church and every local church and every church is standing for the truth of the gospel. One of the greatest privileges you have is to assemble freely with other believers and to give thanks. Why would we neglect so great a privilege and so great a salvation? This exhortation that's given to others is to join with the psalmist in this act of worshiping God. Worship should always contain thanksgiving. If your worship has no thanksgiving in it, it's not worship. If your worship is always centered upon what God needs to do for you and over and over and over again, thanksgiving worship is about what He does. Communicating His goodness to you. Worship was never meant to be about you and I. Worship is not meant to be what we feel. It's not even about what we give. You cannot add to God. You cannot add to His goodness. We are praising God for what He has given us and returning thanksgiving for that. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. His mercy endureth forever. How is the goodness of, this, of the Lord expressed? Again, as we've already mentioned, it's expressed not only in God the Father, but God the Son, and also God the Spirit. When we think about His mercy endureth forever and this covenantal love and loyalty, it can only be fully expressed by the Trinity. I can only express the total goodness of God if I include all three persons. Some are leaning towards, well, we give all thanks to the Father. Or we're a church that gives all thanks to the Son. Or we're a church that gives all thanks to the Spirit. The true thanksgiving and praise and worship of God must include the three in one. There are churches that make a grave error that only celebrate the Spirit. And it leads them to severe doctrinal error. There are those who have said, only Jesus. And you folks know what I'm saying here. Only Jesus. We don't need the Father. We don't need the Spirit. You don't have Jesus if you don't have the Father and the Spirit. The very essence of God's goodness is surrounded in the reality of God in the Trinity. Even going all the way back to the covenant made before the foundation of the world for the redemption of sinners came on the basis of this covenant of grace, the complete salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and the love of the Spirit. What does the Spirit do for us? The Spirit reveals to you. The Spirit reveals the very goodness of Christ. The Spirit doesn't speak of Himself. He speaks of Christ. Every time when we begin to feel as if we need to worship the Lord, it is the Spirit who reminds us of who God is. God the Spirit never tries to supplant the Son. He testifies of Him. He shows forth to the church. He shows forth to the people this God and this goodness. I think another aspect of God's goodness we have to consider, and I think the only word to describe it is the immensity of it. The immensity of God's goodness. How immense is it? If it has no end, then it has no limit. If it has no limit, then it must come from He who has no limits. He's not bound. He's not hindered. He is eternally good. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, verse 2 says. For His, again, mercy endureth forever. I hope we understand this morning that your very salvation proceeds from mercy. And nothing else. The very essence, the entirety of your salvation flows from God's mercy. And His electing love comes from just that. His love. We are to only return thanksgiving to God for our salvation. We are never, ever to take credit for our salvation in any way, shape, or form. It would be to put yourself on an equal footing with God, you would have to consider yourself good to take any credit for your salvation. But you just can't get around those pesky words in Romans. There's none good. There's none righteous. No, not one. So how could something that is not good provide any act of mercy, especially in the mercy that brings salvation? This hymn, this psalm, all sound hymns and psalms should have a burden about them. One of the things I enjoy doing, and I think it's really important to do if you have ability to do this, is to read about the hymns that we sing. Now, it doesn't happen as much with the newer hymns, but it certainly happens with the older hymns. You ought to give yourself over to reading some hymn stories. You ought to give yourself over to real, remember, reading the burden that these people had. Many of those older hymns were not written to gain a popular following. They weren't written to give a sound that would appeal. They were written from the position of a burden. 
They were written from a place of a person who truly is coming to a knowledge and understanding, whether it's in a knowledge and understanding of God's salvation or His goodness or His love or His mercy. Every song has a burden. I believe every psalm in our Bible has a burden to it. There's something that's at the heart of why that psalm exists. I believe the burden of this psalm is mercy. That God would have His people understand that every bit of His goodness flows out of His mercy. That's why it's mentioned 26 times. His mercy endureth forever. Think about it this way. 26 times we're giving, given an everlasting, eternal promise. 26 times, and all of them will be true forever. You and I can't keep a single promise in most cases. Because even if we keep the promise, we think about not keeping it. When you make a promise to someone, oftentimes, doesn't, not too long after, we think, boy, maybe I shouldn't have made that promise. Or you know what this is going to require of me to make such a promise? I'm going to have to live up to this promise. God doesn't think that way. These are eternal promises. How long will these promises last? As long as He lives and as long as we live. We are going to rejoice in this great promise of His mercy. God's mercy toward us in Christ endures forever. Again, verse 2 reminds us the repetition of the exhortation proceeds to give us the reasons and the why of worship. In other words, before the psalmist ever talks about how do you worship God, he wants us to see here is the burden. The title, God of Gods here, shows the very thought that the psalmist had about this Jehovah, this God. It was the object of his worship. All true worship has to have a proper object. That proper object is God only. Man should never be given the preeminence and man should never be worshipped under any circumstance. If a human being, no matter what his rank is, no matter what his title is, is never, ever, ever to be worshipped. Only God, God of gods, Lord of lords, it singles out that there's only one object that we really truly can worship. And there's only one object of our worship that we ought to return faith or return thanks to, and that's God. This very God, think about this, is not a God that was created, but a God who is God Himself. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He is not the creation of man's imagination. How often we stop and think about God has no beginning. 
Just that alone, that God is, he is not the result of some man's science or some man's philosophy. He is God by Himself. Not even the angels that are in His presence are God. But yet, His glory, His majesty, He doesn't receive any glory, any majesty, or anything from any other creature. No one can add to His essence. No one can add to who He is. He is the God of gods. Folks, I hope you see that this psalmist is very, very intentional of the inspiration of the Spirit of the words that are being said. There ought to be an intentionality about what we speak and what we say and how we say it. And how we phrase it. The writer, the psalmist here, is very deliberate on the subject. I'm probably like many of you. I come to a subject, I come to a thinking upon God, and in my mind and in my heart, I begin to say, I understand it. I got it. And I'm quick to move on. But do you know we really should deliberately think about God's goodness? And I'm not talking in a five-minute running out the door with your coffee in your hand thinking about what you just read. I'm talking about a deliberate act of thinking upon God and His goodness. There ought to be some deliberation in our worship. There ought to be some, some, some thinking. What, what am I really thanking God for? Would you thank God in the same way? If you had no earthly possessions? It's a lot easier to thank God when you have a lot of things. And you have a lot of things that you can say. I'm not, I'm not relying on these things. And it's only until they're taken away that we see, am I truly thankful for God? See, the psalmist is very deeply deeply impressed with the goodness of God. And how does he connect that? Because he connects God's goodness with this mercy. When he deliberately thinks upon God's goodness and the mercy that flows to him, the psalmist then returns what could only be the natural response to that, which is thanksgiving. And praise. The psalm reads almost like a person who is going through these steps of here's one thing, here's another thing, here's another thing, here's one more thing to be thankful for, here's one more reason to be thankful for his mercy, and another, and another, and another, and another, and it never stops. You will never reach the end of God's mercy. You can dig as far as you can dig. You can look as far as you want to look. You can search high and low, north, east, south, west. Look how you'll never find the end of his mercy because it says it will endure forever. It will always be there. 
What about our own thinking upon this? God's mercy not only extended to Him, but He reminds us that God's mercy extends over all of God's creation and every work that He does. What does that mean? That means everything that happens in this world. Everything that happens in this world according to God is according to His goodness. Now remember, don't get your eyes on the people that are corrupting the goodness or attempting to. God is good. Creation itself is an inanimate object. The mountain can't be sinful. The oceans can't be sinful. God's creation, when He looked upon it, what did He announce it? He pronounced it good. It's the depravity of man. But if I know today that the goodness of Lord, the goodness of the Lord, every work that He does, every act of His sovereignty, every act of His providence, every work of His grace is essentially good. Because God is good. I hope this morning that will encourage us. We'll go through this each week. We're going to go through verse by verse. Being reminded again of God's goodness. We'll talk more about His wisdom. And we'll talk more about this strong hand of God. And how we ought to return proper praise for what He's done for us. Well, let's conclude this time in the Word by stand together and we'll sing 376. 376. What grace is mine?